Welcome to this episode of Tea with Triggy. It's great to have you here. This is a podcast where I catch up with friends and people that I find fascinating. I check that they're doing okay and ask for tips to help us stay at home more comfortable. My guest this week is the lovely Alan Titchmarsh, the definitive voice of all things botanical and horticultural. You know him from his wonderful gardening programs and also his amazing novels that he writes. Please stay tuned to the end because Alan is going to give you some tips for your garden. Hello, Alan. At last. <laughs> it's well, so lovely tried. to see you. I just and explained you. to everyone we tried to do this a week ago and my in, my tinternet went gosh knows where it went but it went somewhere so i apologized profusely and you were so gentlemanly about it that's right i've had a week to get more nervous about your <laughs> grilling well i'm very nerve-wracking aren't i <laughs> so intimidating always have been <laughs> well the first thing obviously because you're having tea with me have you got a cup of tea i have got my cup of tea here we are what do you drink any your... anything <laughs> Need you ask, Yorkshire? What a stupid question. <laughs> How do you take it? Very little milk, uh, no sugar. No yeah. sugar, good boy. Well, I've got lemon and ginger today, but I like a good strong cup of, we call it builder's tea, because my dad was from Lancashire, you see, so we couldn't say it was Yorkshire tea. It's a wonder I'm talking to you, really, isn't it? I do remember having tea once somewhere up there, and, and the, um, the guys, when I was working in the Parks Department nursery, and the guy said, oh, this is shamrock tea. So I said, what shamrock tea? It was very weak. He said, it's shamrock tea. I said, what's that? He said, three leaves. <laughs> <laughs> That's brilliant. Somebody should make it. <laughs> <laughs> it would go a long way, wouldn't it? So where, where, where are you talking to me from? I'm talking to you from my barn in Hampshire, which is just alongside the house where Lovely. I live. It's an old Georgian farmhouse with about four acres of, of ground, but which about three quarters of an acre is garden proper. And the rest of it is really sort of nature reserve. I've got a wildflower meadow and a a wildlife pond that we dug out. So it's a lovely little part of Hampshire in an old house. And I, there was a long, long, 100 and odd feet long barn made out of something called marmstone, which is like very hard chalk. And when we came, it was derelict. Uh, we've been here 18 years now. Uh, and so we restored it. And I've got, um, you know, there's a garages and a potting shed at one end. And, and my study and library at the other end and that's why the rafters you can see behind me there. I say it I looks gorgeous study. I was going to say to you a stupid question to you but you must have a garden obviously so yeah but but most of it is wildflowers just three quarters of an acre uh, an acre garden yeah and that's garden proper and I do I do like my garden you know um it's important that to me that, that the garden is is lovely. Well, I do it. You know, it's what I do. It's part of my life. It's part of me. It's not like a busman's holiday when you get home. <laughs> no, I just love it. I mean, it's a vocation rather than a job. You know, I just just yeah, love doing I know. it. So and and but I, you know, I mean, obviously, actually, I would just before I get into that, the last time we saw each other, we were eating strawberries and cream and drinking very nice champagne at Wimbledon last year. Do you remember? Weren't we lucky? Do I remember? Oh, there you and I in sitting the, in, in the, the royal box, no exactly. less. Very posh. Yeah, no, it wasn't was it wonderful. a fabulous day? Yeah. 
Alison missed afternoon tea. We came late for afternoon tea because I have a wife who's a very keen tennis player and mm. loves watching Wimbledon. She said, I'm not going in for afternoon tea. I want to watch this match. So I, I like tennis, but I also like afternoon tea in the Royal Box of Wimbledon. <laughs> 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 it was a fab day, wasn't it? It was wonderful. The weather oh, was good. The tennis I've was really good. missed it this year, actually. Have you? Oh, I mean, watching yeah. it on TV. and Well, we've missed everything. And Ali's very sporty. And I, I do love sitting there watching a bit of Wimbledon. So and we've lost the Olympics. You know, so yeah, it's been a bit sad for sport. Really. I know. I feel terribly sad sorry for the, the people especially the olympics you know the com- competitors because they train for so long to get to that point funny enough, i was it- talking to claire balding a couple of days ago mm-hmm. and she said some of them will benefit from it those oh, really? who weren't quite there and oh, who've got okay. another year now to get ready for it they'll they'll benefit but of course there will be or, or anybody who was injured and thought damn it i'm going to miss the games you know they'll have time to recover but of course as i said well, yeah but there'll be others who will feel they've just gone over the hill in another yeah, gone year past the peak yes yeah so, it must yeah. be so and, and 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 also that adrenaline that builds knowing the date you're going to go and then when that goes it, it and a dis- it, you know it's like if you're doing a, the only thing I can align it to is if you're on, you're doing a stage show and suddenly the opening night gets postponed for what oh, we, what reason? Yeah. It's so peculiar because you you build that kind of adrenaline for that night. There's a mental um, progress, isn't there, in mm, that where it, in your head somehow, even if it's weeks ahead, you are mentally geared to one date. And there's something <laughs> very clever about the, the conscious and subconscious in that they they do gear up and you're not always aware of it, but only when it goes wrong do you realise that it's thrown the spanner in the works. Yeah. Also, the other thing that often happens, and it's, I mean, I haven't done that much stage, but the, the, I did a, a big musical on Broadway and... No, I mean, listen, excuse me. I did a big music. I haven't done much, but I did a big music on Broadway. No, I mean, I haven't show, done I mean. lots and lots and lots of stage, like lots of people, but I've done a bit. But the, I remember the build-up to that was so intense because it was a big show. Mm-hmm. Um, and two days before opening night, I got a sore throat and kind of a cough and a cold, that. Oh. And my co-star, Tommy Tune, who's a famous tap dancer, wonderful tap dancer, he put his hip out. <laughs> Oh, no, what a pair! So, uh, but we opened amazingly. This is my one I mean, and only, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And so I got, I got pumped with God knows what <laughs> to get my throat clear, so I could sing. And Tommy kind of did all the tapping, except the height, the kind of big kick things that he does with those long legs. Mm. But we got through it. But, um, but that again, that's adrenaline. Yeah, absolutely. Doctor theatre, they call it, don't they? They do. Well, there's famous stories of ballerinas actually breaking their toes and they do, they carry on dancing. And then when they come off stage, collapse in a heap, then they collapse (laughs) in a heap. Now I've, read a story i've got to ask if it's true that your reporting began in the late 70s where you reported a plague of green fly in margate is this true and it absolutely true it's i was brilliant um, I'd, I'd i'd left kew gardens i started my life as an apprentice gardener and i i then went to college for a year in hertfordshire then i went to kew gardens as a student for three then i i taught there for a couple of years and from there i went into journalism as a gardening books editor and then i became deputy editor of a gardening magazine uh, and we used to get calls from, you know, BBC saying, can you field somebody for this, that or the other? <laughs> uh, and I'd already started doing little bits for you and yours, the radio programme on Radio 4, sort of, you know, Good Friday, tell us what to do in the garden.
garden this Easter weekend. And they started using me for odd little news if newsy things happened. Um, and the Today programme used me as well. I was invited on the Today programme because it must have been about June, I think. There was a, a, a warm wind blowing across Europe. Ooh. And it really suited Greenfly, and it brought millions of Greenfly across the channel. And there were there were decorators painting shop fronts in Margate, and suddenly, woof! All their paint was covered in Greenfly that had blown over. So I did a bit on today in the morning where they said, "Come in and tell us what to do about all these Greenfly." And it was in the days before I was organic, and I've been organic for about forty years. So I was probably recommending various noxious sprays to get rid of them. Um, anyway, somebody heard me from Nationwide. Remember Nationwide, which yeah, was that early evening uh, current affairs show. It's only famous for the skateboarding duck. It did a lot more than that, but that's what everybody <laughs> remembers. And they said, come and tell us um, how to control green flies. So that, that was my first that's taste of true. TV, and it was live in the evening. And I, oh, I God, went, yeah. they, they, at the end of it, they said, oh, you were wonderful. The marvels come back. And I went home full of the kind of, they said, they said, I was wonderful. I must go back. <laughs> well, a year later, I had another phone call because somebody had had a roof garden in a block of flats and it had collapsed into the fl flat below and they said come and tell us how to make a roof garden without it collapsing into the flat below oh so goodness. I went and did that and they said oh marvellous wonderful love you were great you must come back so I came home and said oh usual thing you know anyway the following week they rang up and I don't think I've been off the telly since 1980 uh, that was that that was 1980 then I, my first one was 1979 and I sort of did nationwide and breakfast time and then all all the rest followed you know that's amazing. So that was the beginning of your amazing I television career. I owe my career, career to Greenfly. Never you disparage owe your career them. to... Has there been a plague ever since or not? <laughs> no, just the one. So timing was everything. <laughs> <laughs> well, somebody up there was looking over you. They were, That's they absolutely... were. And so... don't mind the plague of boils and locusts. They sent me a plague of Greenfly. It did me a lot of good. <laughs> Actually, wasn't there... It wasn't there a couple of weeks ago a plague of locusts somewhere? Yeah, or... but mercifully not in this country. And no, they really where was do it? The... I, I it read it It was somewhere overseas. Was it somewhere in the States? In America, it might I think. have been, yeah. But they absolutely, you know, they come in and within hours things are just totally denuded. I mean, green they... fire only sucks up. Locusts yeah. eat foliage. So, but It must be terrible. If they land on you, what do they do? Oh, well, not much. Cause, I they mean, don't tough bite old... or anything, no, do they? No, 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 just tough okay. old skin. They flit off. I won't run if I see a locust. <laughs> no, they are big, though, They're, you know. I actually envy you working at Kew Gardens. Was it amazing? Well, it was. And, I mean, it is the best plant collection in the world. And I, my parents, when I, they only took... Uh, I don't know what they, how many do they take now. But it's, it's a three-year course, and they take, in those days, they took about 15 students a year wow. um, out of all the hundreds of applications. So my parents bought me a transistor radio for getting in. <laughs> for oh, getting. how uh, But it's, I worked in the Palm House, you know, that wonderful big greenhouse there, uh, and I looked after a plant that um, Captain Cook had brought back, <gasps> uh, and they said, don't kill it. <laughs> so, <laughs> No, pre was, no pressure. No pressure. It doesn't like being overwatered. <laughs> oh, my goodness. But don't let it dry out. Oh, crikey. Anyway, it's, it's still alive. I Is went it back still last alive? Year. I went back last year. It's still there. Yeah. Did you give it a hug? I did. We had and a say, remember me? Yeah. <laughs> I didn't kill you. I didn't kill you. Yeah. But haven't you found it? I mean, the other reason, I, I mean, apart from I love talking to you and, and we've known each other for a long time now. We have known. But... Yeah. Um, it's when the lockdown happened. 
it seems that so many people, when they were able, if they had a garden, took to gardening, even if they've never gardened. Even me a little bit, because I'm not really a gardener, but um, Lee loves it, my husband. He's out there all the time. I found it very heartening because it's always meant so much to me and it's been my salvation through life. I was a classic late developer at school and and, and not particularly good at anything, but I I could grow plants at home and made little greenhouses out of polythene. And I've always seen it as the sharp end of conservation and environmental care because it's it's interactive. It's not just looking at stuff. It's not like a bird watcher where you're just watching. You actually sow seeds, take cuttings, interact with nature, help nature along. And I've always loved it um, as well as wildlife. You know, I joined the Wharfdale Naturalist Society when I was eight and I'm oh. still a member. Um, and I've, so for me, and I've always just you know spent my life being a sort of evangelist for gardening and growing things. And so the fact that people were, in a way, confined to their gardens, I thought, oh, this will be interesting. And so many people did find it enormous solace. And, you know, mental health has been a big thing for their mental through health, lockdown. Yeah. yeah, and just to get out there. And even for me, and you know, and I do it most days, but to be confined to my garden, and I didn't go out for um, nearly three months, um, except in the garden. I haven't been in a supermarket yet, um, which is wonderful. Um, <laughs> and I to be there every day and watch things grow every day. And I was out there from eight till eight, sort of you know, twelve hour days wow. because I love it. And but, yes, you it's... know, I read about people who've never gardened mm. in their life, and mm. suddenly. It, it has now become a passion. I hope what people it... have realised that is if you look, if you observe, it's not quite as mysterious as you thought it was. Gardening should always be magical, but I like to try and banish the mystery and the fear of it. You know, and just say, if you do that, watch what happens if you give something too much water or not enough water. And mm-hmm. you start to be able to understand their needs and then it's mm-hmm. a delight. Well, we've been very lucky because we, we're in Sussex and we inherited... I think they think it's over two hundred year mulberry tree. Oh, wonderful! Yeah, it's enormous. Yeah, and the and now you're getting all the come... fruits dropping. Yeah, yeah, my daughter can't wait. She said, "You've <laughs> got to pick it all, Mum, and I'm going to make jam." <laughs> but it is enormous. Yeah, and you they... have to have specialists down because it does need trimming. But we wouldn't know how to start. It, but... They grow very fast. The thing yeah. about them is actually they can look older than their years because they get gnarled very quickly. Mulberries. Oh, okay. But uh, so it, it, it may it may be two hundred years old. It, it may not be because they they do. They well, age. this guy thought it was, but I, yeah. they haven't done any tests on it. Unlike you, they but age you... very badly. <laughs> Thank you. But um, he said you have to ha- you, you have to you, you have to be careful how you trim it. So we're going to get you know somebody who knows what they're doing. They put on a lot of growth. I mean, they put on two or three feet a year. Oh, it's huge! Yeah. It's absolutely. Yeah. And the other beautiful tree we've inherited is a jacaranda. I think it's jacaranda. Oh, that's unusual. Yeah, um, very unusual. With it's the quite very tender. purple, um, lavender purple flowers. Oh, are we talking that's jacaranda or are we talking Paulonia? I don't Is know. Is it the, the foxglove tree? No. It's, what, what's amazing about it, when it flowered, there were no leaves. It was just flowers. They were, I thought it was jacaranda. I looked I it up I think it's book. Paulonia. Look up Paulonia. How do you spell that? P- P-A-U-L, Paul, as in the boy's name. And then, then O-W... N-I-A, Paulonia, it might be. Has it got massive, great round leaves when they come? Yeah, but the, they came after the flowers dropped off. Yeah, it was but weird. they are big and round. Yeah, I think so. I yeah, can't remember. I think it's Paulonia. I'll have to look go and have a look, but I'm not going yeah. to... Are they unusual or not? Um, unusual, not, um, relatively uncommon. You see them about and, yeah, you... They, um, 
it was yeah. so beautiful when yeah. the, the they were let, like pale pale purple lavender the whole tree was that they're like candelabras, was, it, aren't they, on oh, the tree? It was yeah. breathtaking, absolutely breathtaking. So I am learning little bits. <laughs> <laughs> I'll try. As long as you're interested and you care, that's the thing, really. Yeah, you that's just to true. care about it. That's true. So you you were saying when you were a little boy, you joined um, the naturalists, uh, yeah, yeah, not the, the naturists, because in Yorkshire there aren't many naturists. It's a bit cold, <laughs> but lots of naturalists. <laughs> oh, I still keep up with them. They're a lovely organisation. So yeah. did you know at that young age that's what you wanted? to do or it was yeah. just a hobby from being about eight that's all you, I wanted to that's do that's what I wanted to be a, um, yeah and a so I took me I took me art O level a year early at 15 and I left school and became an apprentice gardener um, oh it's lovely when you know that early what you want to I do because it's, it's a passion isn't it it's lucky to, to know. And I think a lot of people don't. You know, they, it takes ages of being nudged one way or the other. And if you let life nudge you, which I'm a great believer in, it finds you out. You know, life finds you out if you let it. I've all, I, I remember his name. I remember talking to Dirk Bogard and he said, you know, don't, don't go through life with one focus. It's it, 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 like saying there's a sort of feeling there's a corridor with a door you want to get through. He said, uh, so many people go down and say, that's where I'm going. I'm going to do this. I'm going there. I'm, they have a plan a career plan he said and they get to the door and it's locked and bolted and they can't get in and what they didn't realize there were lots of side doors on the way where people said come in here no i'm going down there and they led actually to an interesting journey um probably to the same place but by a different route and the the bottom line from him was just be open to things that come from unexpected areas isn't it really really brilliant and that's what I've. That's why I've ended up being a, a chat show host and presenting last night the proms and all kinds of things. You know. I say you've done it. Well, I listen to you on Classic FM as well. Yeah, every Saturday. I love yeah. those programs. It's, it's classical music always been a passion. Yeah, because I was a choir boy from being oh, yeah. gosh ten or something like that. So church, you know, and, was, and I used to go and buy classical records. Do you remember when you had a record shop and you had pegboard line booths and you used to go in yeah. and singles were four and six and then they suddenly went up to six. <laughs> four isn't it sad that you remember things like anyway i used to go and buy but i would go and buy classical records and ask them to be wrapped in a brown paper bag so my mates didn't see oh didn't tease you (laughs) that's so sweet well i can remember when because i might i've got two sisters one's seven years older than me and one's uh 14 years older but the one who was seven years older she was very into pop music and this must have been in the early late 50s early 60s and we didn't have a record player, but she used to buy the records. I think they were 78s, weren't they, then? Oh, way back. Before they the, were 45s, yeah. I think, by late but 50s, when, I think. 45. Oh, well, then they might have been 45. Yeah. But I can remember she'd buy them, and then we'd sit down for our tea, and she'd pass them round the room so we could... <laughs> Look, no, look, look at them. not listen could, to it, but look we at it. Play them. Well, so now you sad. see, we were quite smart because we had a, a Fidelity record player, oh, really? but our Fidelity record player, you could actually put the lid down when an LP was playing. Now, oh, the cheaper yeah, ones, you usually, had to leave the lid up. Yeah. Well, my dad felt so sorry for my sister that he eventually, because he worked in the film studios, he was a master carpenter, and um, he managed through one of the guys to get a second hand do you remember those little bloom cream yeah um portable covered, players that's right covered so in sweet. sort of fablon weren't they kind of yes. yeah yeah so she could play it at last bless her oh, that was, um, that was oh, that's I such love a the image of her just handing them round so you could touch this precious I thought item I, well i must have been about seven or eight and i thought it was 
I thought it was amazing. <laughs> I mean, simple pleasures. <laughs> oh, I do remember buying my first. I, I used to buy. I, I did buy She Loves You. I bought a few pop records as well, but it was mainly classical. But I remember the very first uh, forty-five record I bought in the paper sleeve was Ross Conway playing China Tea. There you oh, are, yes. Tea with Twiggy. <laughs> China there Tea with Twiggy. That's, yeah, that's right. My, my first memory of a, a record. Well. A record that I had was Cliff Richards, I think, Living Doll. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I think I was about six or seven, and my friend Jennifer and me, we used to dance to it in our little party dresses. Oh, <laughs> but it's such a strong memory, isn't it? Yeah, hugely strong mu- memory. music... Well, you and I both, you know, we both met. Well, you probably know, I now know Cliff a bit. You know, you probably know him better than I do. It's I don't. What, I know him. I know yeah. him. Say hello to isn't him. it wonderful when you actually get to meet the people who... And I you feel know. so embarrassed at saying <laughs> that they were part of your formative years, you know, because you think, yeah, because everybody must say that to them, you know. But know. just for yourself, it's quite nice to be in their company and think, cool, I never thought, you know, there we are. <laughs> Well, I always think that about the Beatles because they were such a huge influence on the world. Yeah. Not only us. And um, and what's happened with them, their music has gone on to the next generations and the next generation. I mean, my little granddaughter is five. She loves, you know, a lot of the Beatles songs because my daughter plays them. It's a test of, of a good... It's, uh, people don't really use the word tune much nowadays, but it's the test of a good, <laughs> a good tune. tune. Well, it is because you get part of the things you suck to get over your sore throat. Um, <laughs> because look at the catalogue of Beatles hits that have become orchestral versions, that have been cover versions by people. And you don't hear many modern groups uh, or, or individuals whose... Um, songs are covered by anybody else people don't do cover versions anymore probably because they're not worth it they're much more ephemeral yeah Yeah, i agree i mean it's like it's almost the same thing like the gershwin you know george and i are gershwin you know they they've they've traveled on and yeah jerome kern yeah Yeah, rogers and cole porter they're absolutely amazing now obviously you've done you do an and we watch them every week, your gardening programmes, because they're brilliant. <laughs> but um, And actually, it's it's one of my daughter's favourite programmes every week. Oh, God, but, I've, tra- I've translated to, to a new generation. You have. Yeah. <laughs> well, she, you know, she's she's 40, so with two little ones. But the other programme I love that you did, I don't know if you're still doing it, obviously not through lockdown, but The Secrets of the National Trust. How did that happen? They're brilliant. It, well, what was great was that, um, you know, if you call a programme Secrets of the National Trust, you can't just walk around looking what everybody else looks at as well, because <laughs> what are the secrets? And the National Trust are notoriously precious, in, and quite rightly too, about the things they own and not letting people touch them, and they, you know, a lot of them aren't on view. Um, we said that if we were going to make it, we really ought to live up to the title and show some things that people don't normally see. And I remember vividly at this Lime Park being allowed to hold um, the Lime Missal, which is a, a, a big prayer book, by William yeah. Caxton, 1437 oh yeah. or something like that. And I said, you're going to let me hold it? Yes, hold it, you know. And I collect old books, so for me it was like kind of the Holy Grail. And it's been fascinating seeing the things that the public don't normally see and sharing them with, 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 with all of us, you know. So, yeah, I really enjoyed that. I've done about three or four series. I've I finished now, I think, but there's a few more to go out still, yeah. 
Oh, good. I was saying, I didn't know if you were... Well, obviously, nobody's doing anything at the moment, but uh, no shooting anything, but they are so wonderful. Have you got a favourite house? I mean, if you could have one of those houses in your dreams, which one would it be? There's a a little one called Kingston Lacey in Dorset, which is sort of four square, uh, and it's a handsome house, and it sits in sort of open mowed lawns, unfussy, and you see the architecture of the house, the views are wonderful, and I thought... Yeah, this would do me. And is that it, the one? There was one that you loved the garden because it had a kind of pyramid at the end. Was that's that? it. That's the one. Yeah, I remember yeah. that one. It, it's gorgeous, isn't yes, it? Yes. And when you looked everything. out of the house, you could see the pyramid and the gardens. Yeah, it was, it was like so Cleopatra's pretty. Needle. Yeah. Yeah, because some of those big houses are a bit, I don't know, a bit scary if you'd lived in them. They're, they're a bit so austere. Huge. A lot of them are, yeah. are dark. But we we found some really good ones, interesting stories. Yeah. No, it's wonderful. And it, I, I'm amazed that the National Trust let you in. So am I. <laughs> Knowing me, I mean, if they knew me like you know me, you know they wouldn't let me in. Don't don't he drops things. Don't let him in. You know. I did a lovely story once. I remember in the days of Magnus Magnuson, I think he was doing a program about the Romans or sort of ancient British civilization, and, and he was holding a piece of slate that was engraved, and apparently it was Roman. He dropped it and it broke in half. Oh my goodness! <laughs> yeah. So, Is that true? I think so. Oh, gosh, I'm not impugning all... Magnus. It can happen to any of us. Oh, but I'm pretty sure goodness. I remember that. But the other thing we did together, which I don't think they ran with, but it was such a brilliant idea, was the... Um, I can't remember what you called it. What was it called? Alan Titchmarsh's Walks of Fame. Yeah, it uh, was... Bri- I did, did a, the first one, didn't I? You did, I? and it was the last one as well. But it was great. I, it I think was... it was one of those programmes, if we're sort of talking a bit sort of in-depth here, if you get a commissioner who commissions a programme and then they move on and somebody else inherits yeah. it, they don't have the same feeling of ownership about it. And that's all it no. was, because we had a lot of time in Southwell. And, and it, the, the product was fabulous, wasn't yeah. it? We did it up in... Um, Southwell. Southwell, yeah. In Suffolk? Yeah. yeah, Suffolk. yeah. It's not Norfolk, is it? Yeah. Southwell. No, Southwell's in Suffolk. And you interviewed me, but on a walk, which yeah. was such a lovely way to do an interview. Well, I think, Be- do you know this, they always say, don't they, you know, if, you, um, if you've got a child who, who, who won't talk to you much, go and get in the car. Yeah. Because True. if you're not actually looking one another face to face, you're sitting side by side, more comes out. And in a way, on the what not that you wouldn't have talked to me if I'd have been <laughs> facing you, but but you just sort of you're, you're, your mind can go when you're walking side by side, can't it? And I think you get some good conversation. Also we we went to well Southwold is gorgeous. Mm. And all that 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 place just outside Southwold we went to where the horses were, do you remember? And we walked through that field it was so beautiful. I'd never been to that bit before. Yeah. And then we went along the pier. We did, and we went to the little picture house, didn't we? Oh, yeah. Saw a bit that of the boyfriend. A... That's right. Oh, yeah. gosh, yeah. That's a... Is that the smallest picture house in yeah. the UK? Probably. S- certainly the smallest in Suffolk. <laughs> <laughs> well, it had about eight seats, didn't yeah. it? Yeah, it was Amazing. It was, it, but that was really rather strange. You see, sitting next to you watching The Boyfriend in the tiniest cinema in Britain. Is it? That's yeah. so funny. Funny. Moments that you never oh, forget. I really enjoyed doing that show. It was lovely. Yeah, well, you were good company, love. It's very kind of Oh, well, thank you. Maybe you should try and do it again. Yeah, with I'll, other people. I'll tell you. Do you remember? She it's says brilliant... it was good and we need to do it's another one. It's a brilliant one. idea. Yeah. I'd watch it anyway. Oh, all right. <laughs> <laughs> How long did you do Pebble Mill for? Ten years. Because <gasps> yeah. I did that with you a couple yeah. of times. 1987 to 96. Wow. 
And that was live, if I remember, it wasn't was. it? It was, yes, it was. Yeah. I, there well, were funny great. occasions there. I remember there was a big classical music awards ceremony going on. It was in Birmingham, obviously, Pepper Mill, at Symphony Hall in Birmingham. And I stayed in a hotel there when I was up. I was usually up there about three days a week doing it. I stayed in a hotel, and, and it, one day I was in the lobby in the hotel, and Placido Domingo walked in, and he was staying there for these classical music awards. I thought, oh, he'd be a great guest. Um, and, and, and I got up to my room and I wrote a note and took it down to reception and said, do you think you could just pass, you know, get this to Mr Domingo's room? I didn't want to confront him and get to put him in an unfortunate situation. But I just said to him, you know, you wouldn't come on the programme tomorrow, would you, by any chance, and, and do an interview and talk about the classic? And I got this phone call saying you would come on the programme. So the following day, Placido Domingo came on the programme. I had Evelyn Glennie on, the percussionist, profoundly deaf percussionist, um, and I'm sitting next to those two on this sofa and asked, which is a terrible thing to do, again, I shouldn't have done it, said to Placido Domingo, you, would, you wouldn't sing something, would you? you know? And he ummed and ahmed. And, and then he took Evelyn Glennie's hand and he sang, sitting <gasps> next to me, you know, your tiny hand is frozen. And, you know, oh. and when you're next to a voice that is that big, n- not loud, big, big. Um, you feel the earth move. And he apologised after. He said, I'm sorry, I, t- I took a moment or two to do it. He said, I was just getting the equipment ready. <laughs> Oh, what a he's moment. the nicest man, though, yes, isn't he? Yes, I did a, a television um, show in Florida. God, this was when I was doing my one and only on Broadway, and we flew down on a day off or a Sunday to go on the Bob Hope special. Oh gosh, who was he? Was gorgeous. He was ever so funny, and Placid, Placido Domingo was yeah. one of the other guests. <laughs> Oh. And, and he's, I didn't get to sing with him, unfortunately. But I did get to sing with Bing Crosby Oh, once. no, you see. I did. And uh, you see, my last... only excitement is Blooming Greenfly. Go on, <laughs> tell me about singing with Bing Crosby because we want to know. <laughs> it was his last TV special. Wow. We didn't know it was going to be his last, obviously. But he came over from L.A. with his family and it was they were doing a Christmas special in good old London. Yeah. And they had a set, I think it was at Pinewood, and um, his family were there. It was meant that they did like an old Tudor house set, so they were meant to be spending it in an old English house. And I was a guest, Stanley Baxter, David Bowie. My goodness. It was quite... Do you remember the clip of him singing with Bing, the little drummer boy? That's from that show. Oh, my goodness. It's a famous clip. You can see it on... It's beautiful. I think they may have released it as a single, actually. Right. Him and and Bing singing that. And I sang Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas with him. I was so nervous. I mean, I was only about... I was in my early 20s. And the thought of singing with Bing Crosby <laughs> put the fear of God into me. I was so nervous. And he only liked singing live. He didn't He didn't want to do uh, lip syncing, yeah. quite yeah. rightly. Yeah. So they recorded the track and we, we had to, I sang it live with him. But oh. it's gorgeous. And have you it got it? Gorgeous. Have you got a copy Well, of I've it? got the clip. Yeah. yeah it's yeah. beautiful. Oh, but it was, I was my heart was pounding. I'll bet. <laughs> but he was he he because he had quite a a, a, a colourful reputation. Shall we put it that well, way? Did. Lots he, of people. He, he, yeah, you always want was, to think he was sort of as avuncular as he appeared on screen. Yeah. Apparently, he was quite tricky. I think wasn't he? He was apparently. Mm. But I have to say, maybe it's because it was in his latter years. He was charming to me, and we yeah. got on. Very well. And then he'd, we'd finish the show because it was a Christmas show, but we shot it in September. And um, 
We finished the show. He went out. He said, I said, are you going straight back to LA? He said, no, I'm going to go off and play golf, which was his passion. Mm. And he went off to play golf and he had a massive heart attack. He won the round apparently and had a massive heart attack and died. I mean, awful, but in a way, a wonderful way to go because that was his big passion, golf. And yeah, he and Bob Hope too, as well. I mean, he was a golfer too, wasn't he? Yeah, I, think I so. love that story about Bob because I think Bob Hope was a bit, a bit of a naughty boy. Um, a little bit. And he had one or two <laughs> interesting things uh, um, on the side in his marriage. And there's this lovely story. Dolores, his long-suffering wife, came back apparently. Dolores. Dolores was his wife's name. She came back apparently and found him in bed with some young thing, and he pulled the sheets over his head and said, "It's not me." <laughs> Only Bob Hope. <laughs> God, unbelievable! But they were like a. There won't be the likes of them again. Will yeah, they? Don't, aren't you grateful, really, to have gone through that period oh. of your life meeting legends, legend after legend? I mean, after when legend. I think of the people I've met, I mean, mm. I met, I met and had tea with Noel Coward. Oh my goodness! Unbelievable. Um, again, I was very nervous. I mean, I think I was nineteen when I met him, and he was what in his seventies, late sixties, mm. early seventies. And again, he was he was wonderful. And I just when I look back and think, gosh, I actually met and sat and talked and had tea with Noel Coward. Did I mean, you appreciate it, it at the time? I mean, did you? Were you Not s- as much as later because yeah. I hadn't read. I hadn't. I, I I knew I knew a lot of his songs. Yeah. And I'd read a couple of the plays, the famous ones, but I didn't know his. I mean, he mm. was. I mean, what he wrote and what he did. Unbelievable! How can one man write and and, oh, and create laughter, private so many lives, things. hay fever, all that, and all those songs, amazing, wonderful songs. It's, the songs are so. Be- I mean, I did um, in New York. We, we um, Sheridan Morley had put together um, a, a, an amalgamation of him. It was called Noel and Gertie, and it was songs and pieces from the plays that they did in London. And then we got permission to do it in New York from Sheridan. And and Lee asked, Lee, my husband, he um, asked Sheridan if he could rearrange some of the songs and do the more famous ones that the Americans would know and things that would suit me. And I played Gertie and Harry Groner played um, an old coward and he was wonderful. And what was lovely when we did it, so many young people, because they knew me, we got quite a lot of young, not that I was that young, but we got 20 and, you know, because they love the 60s, 20-year-olds and that, who'd never actually heard of Noel Coward. And they'd come to the stage door and say, oh, you know, thank you for introducing. He's, I'm going to go off and buy a record and I'm going to go and read his plays. And and that was lovely because you think, oh, that's nice. They saw us doing little pieces from his um, plays and singing the songs. What was he and, like when, um, when you met him? I mean, was every every line an aphorism? You know, you kind of get the, <laughs> get the thing. He never spoke in Norman sort I do of boring remember. language. I met, you know? I met him... What did he say? Oh, I know. Well, I met him in Jamaica. We'd gone out on holiday. I mean, I must have been about 17 or 18 years old. he had old. a house we there, on, didn't he? Yeah, yeah he yeah. had a beautiful yeah. house. And we went to tea. We went to stay. I'll tell you what, we, I'm, I'm sounding name-dropping now, but we went to stay with Tommy Steele. Yeah. 
And he was a great friend of Noel's because they both had a house in in, in Jamaica. And we, we were staying with Tommy and Annie and we went to tea. And at that time, Tommy and Annie had a uh, like a two-year-old. I mean, she's probably in her late 40s now, but <laughs> uh, she was two. And we were having tea and cake. And suddenly, Noel, and he was in his dressing gown. <laughs> Silk, of and course. And I've, I've, got, I've got a little picked snap of us actually sitting oh. next to each other. I look absolutely petrified. I'm going. <laughs> and um, suddenly he said, Annie, your child has something alien on her upper lip. <laughs> and it was a piece of cake. But instead of saying, your kid's got cake round her mouth. <laughs> Your child has something alien. There on are her so upper many, lip. so many stories Ooh. about him. There's apparently somebody started. He was in Australia, and uh, and, and and he was going up in, in a lift, and some Australian got in a lift and said, "Oh, Mr. Coward," he said, "Say something funny." So now old Coward said, "Kangaroo." <laughs> <laughs> but his songs. I mean, I oh, sang. I we did about nineteen songs in that show. We changed the title. To if love were all, mm. which is one of his famous, beautiful mm. songs, I sang that, and um, they're so gorgeous, they're so lovely to sing, and and then obviously he did his lovely comedy ones. Yeah, he oh, did session. He used to go and do um, his uh, cabaret in Las Vegas, didn't he? Yeah. Um, well, he went kind of out of style here. Yeah. You know, like yeah, happens. there was a the sixties ro- came along, exactly. and everyone thought he was old fashioned. Yeah. And so you know they. I think he then got a gig in Vegas and hopefully they he probably needed to make some money. Yeah. <laughs> Don't we all? Yeah. And um he went off to Vegas and oh, he's, had a say, huge he's, huge hit there. He is a bit they of a hero. I, I love I love talking to you cuz I mean, you don't name drop but you 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 fill me in on on people whose lives have oh. been a part of well, my Well you know life. my hero and I did meet him. My hero was Fred Astaire. Oh. See. And I actually got to meet him. I think if Alison, if my wife, who was a dancer and then taught dance, if, and I'm a fan of his too, if Alison had met him, I think she would just have dissolved into a heap of a pool of sort <laughs> Again, of... Again, <laughs> he was one of, one of the sweetest, most modest men you could ever meet. Yeah. And also, no, I mean, nobody danced like Fred Astaire in my book. To me, he was the greatest. But nobody walked across a room like Fred. Oh. I remember going up, we were invited to tea at his house, and I remember... Him coming in the room, it was a large room, and he walked across the room, and it was just that kind of, yeah. oh, I don't know. It was, yeah, but his he feet didn't cream... actually touch the floor, did they, really? No, I mean... and he had cream trousers with a tie, tie you know, through the loops, yeah. tied in a, a knot, and a, a cream shirt. He was just so stylish. Oh, and, and I also think he was a great singer. I did dance with his daughter once on Pebble Mill, funnily enough. Oh, did you? With, yeah. friend, with Arthur? Yes. Oh, yeah, she's, she's a friend, actually. Oh. She's a nice lady. Well, the reason I know her, when I was invited to go and have tea with him, because I told somebody at MGM he was my hero, and I got an invite to meet her. I was 20 at the time. Um, Arthur was there. She was a little bit older than me. She was probably about 25. And years later, because we became friends... She um, said, you know why I was, at, I was at the house with Daddy that day? Because she obviously wasn't living at home. And I said, no. She said, he rang me and said, will you come, come over tomorrow because Twiggy's coming to tea? And I'm terrified. There you are. You see, you do it to other people as well. Yeah. Oh, I'm very, te- I'm very terrified. Intimidating, yeah. <laughs>
Now, I know all about your, and my, everyone knows about your gardening books, but I'm a huge fan of your novels. Oh, thank you. You write really good novels, Bless I think. You. The first one I read was The La- Last Lighthouse Keeper. Yeah, that was the second one I wrote, Which, yeah. yeah. Well, that was the first one I read. Yeah. What the, was the first one you wrote? The first one was called Mr McGregor, which was about a TV gardener. Uh, and oh, it, no. It was, a little <laughs> bit, it was a little bit racy. It wasn't remotely sordid. I don't do sordid, but it was a little no. bit racy. Uh, and I got a, kind of branded as someone who writes racy novels. I thought, oh, no, please, it'll be such a letdown when people buy them and they're supposed oh, to be racy. So I, I got my compliments when you have to do, as you know, the audio book, and you find yourself oh, yeah. reading out this romantic love scene, um, and the only other person listening is the other side of a sheet of glass, and he's generally rather large, bearded uh, <laughs> gent <laughs> who looks, anything, you know, not what you want to be looking at when you're reading a romantic scene. But, yeah, I've written 11 now. The last one was, which I think you have written, is, is The Scarlet Nightingale, which is a yeah, sort of I, I, I finished that a couple of months ago. I absolutely loved it, and I can recommend it. It's gorgeous. But you're a really good novelist. I mean, I because I love, I love books, I love proper stories, you know, that have yeah. a Well, I try and write books that I would like to read. Yeah, beginning yeah, Midland exactly. and you can disappear yeah. into them, you know. You know, I mean, there are wonderful books that don't do that, but for me, I need I need a story. Yeah. So, well, I'm, I'm a huge fan, as I say, of your books. Now, I'd love you to give some tips, because of all these people who are, you know, trying to get into gardening now, and hopefully they will continue gardening. Gardening. Any any tips for people who haven't got big gardens, who maybe have a window box or an out little outside space? Or... Yeah, I think the thing is really if you if you haven't got much space and, and you you know your garden has to be in pots, don't get a dozen tiny ones. Get two very large ones. You can grow more oh. in a big pot, and they dry out more slowly. So and you know in really sunny summer weather, you're a slave to the watering can and the hosepipe if you're not careful. And a big pot, and I mean something sort of eighteen twenty inches across, a, a hefty thing. You can plant anything. You can do vegetables and fruit in them if you want. Um, so. When you're doing pots on a terrace or whatever, make them big. Try and make them all of one or just two different kinds of material. Otherwise, they all, it looks very spotty and messy. If you're doing a veg patch, don't mm-hmm. sow everything on one day in a 50-foot row. Do successional <laughs> sowing. You know, unless you've got a family of rabbits, you don't need 58 lettuces one summer afternoon. So sow sort of a couple of feet a row every 10 days, and then you'll get this succession of, of lettuces and radishes and things like that. That um, is a brilliant tip. I've always wondered that because we had a garden once where we planted and we did get like 50 lettuces. Yeah. We didn't know what to do with Exactly. Them. I think we left them out for the rabbits. But also, That's when you, particularly with, with um, vegetables, you need to make sure they never dry out. I don't mean keep them in a paddy field, but steady, <laughs> steady watering so they just keep maturing steadily is the idea. Um, and in the rest of the garden, just go out there and enjoy it. I mean, when the weather's very hot and the grass slows down, don't keep slavishly mowing it. But when it is growing, mow it once a week because it thickens up. It's like cutting hair. Uh, the more you cut it, oh. the, the thicker it grows. And it's the same with grass. But as I say, not when it's bone dry because it doesn't grow much at all, but generally from April through to sort of September at least, once a week. Well, mowing. haven't you during the lockdown been filming a program grown your I own did, home grow your and Alison has yeah. been filming you she did she's your never had a camera in her life she hasn't even taken a picture on her phone I don't think uh, but she was brilliant <laughs> we did six That's episodes it, it, it seemed to go down very well we got good viewing figures that's a brilliant she's idea. now called Mrs Scorsese her brother sent her a birthday card last Mrs. week and said Scorsese. when's your next blockbuster coming out <laughs> 
<laughs> That's amazing. Listen, thank you so much. Having tea with me. My pleasure. Thank you. Stay and well. Give my love to Alison. I will. And let's hope we get to Wimbledon next year. Be nice, won't it? Please. All right. <laughs> love 40. All right. <laughs> love 40. Lots of love 40. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I really enjoy chatting to Alan. He's such a lovely man. He's a brilliant gardener and he really knows what he's talking about. So do follow his tips. That was brilliant, especially about the lettuces. <laughs> so you don't get hundreds all at once. But what an interesting man. And I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Anyway, I'm going off to have another cup of tea. If you've enjoyed listening to Tea with Twiggy, please take a moment to give us a lovely five-star rating on Apple Podcasts It really helps other people to find the show. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to this podcast so you auto-magically get the next episodes for free. And do tell all your friends and family about it too. If you want to connect with me, I'd love to hear from you. You can find me on Twitter at Twiggy or you can find me on Instagram at Twiggy Lawson. My thanks go to all the people that have helped this podcast happen. Many thanks to James Carroll and all the team at North Bank Talent Management. Thanks to all the team at Stripped Media, including Ben Williams, who edits the show, my producer, Kobe Omanaka, and executive producers, Tom Wally and Dave Corkery. The music you can hear now is my version of Waterloo Sunset by The Kinks. If you'd like to hear the whole song, you can find it and all the other songs I've recorded on iTunes and Spotify. So check it out. I look forward to you joining me for my next episode. So see you then. Bye. You just heard a stripped media production.